Welcome to You Wanted a Hit, a podcast in which we discuss unlikely, perplexing, and positively bizarre songs that swept the nation and often the world. Hit songs that, looking back, make us think, how did this get played on the radio? Do people actually like this? Do we like this? Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Michael Smith, and I'll be discussing one song per episode with my co-host and fellow music fanatic, pop culture enthusiast, Theo Beidler. Each episode, we'll take turns exploring a song, while the other host has no idea what song's the focus until we hit play. You will know this song. If you don't know it within the first second, you'll know it within the first, let's say, eight seconds, I would say. Okay. Let's go. I'm ready. Oh, uh... I know this. Oh, of course. Oh, it's that. You know, I thought it was. uh... There it is. There it is. The elusive heroes, Chumba Wamba. Let's go. Woo. The Chumbies, as one article called them multiple times from 1997. A song that I enjoy. It's a great song. I like this song. I forgot how much I enjoyed this song and definitely owned the record. Probably listened to the entire record once. Probably listened to the, this one song 92 times, like most of my records from uh, the, the mid-90s. After I've done some research, I certainly did not <laughs> appreciate this song for what it was at the time and certainly did not appreciate the band for who they were i don't think anyone did though i don't think anyone in america did that's yeah that's fair that's fair you know a little bit about the band i, I do like. so i worked at a record label called bloodshot records for a, a number of years and there was a lot of strange music on that label and some of that strange music was by his name is danbert nobagan best name I've heard in a long time. I never met him or interacted with him, but I, I heard a lot about this record. He he made like a couple of like political sea shanty records with John Langford. You can tell me all about it, but I'm pretty sure they're like an anarcho punk band. They are. They are indeed. I didn't even know what anarcho punk was until reading about their formation. Well, I can't wait for this. They're essentially the raging ass machine of Britain, and I had zero idea. It's zero idea. I did not appreciate this song for what it was. This song is very political. But to start off, no bacon. He had a Kickstarter in 2015 to create a documentary about this song. Oh, I would watch that in a heartbeat. I would too. And unfortunately, I did not watch it to write up today's episode because it is not out. But it is apparently coming there have been 36 updates on this kickstarter <laughs> the most recent one being from december 2020 where danbert and sophie who is the director documentary is almost finished going to see the light of the day at some point in 2021 but one day we will see a full documentary on chumbawamba and tub thumping oh we're gonna have a viewing party i can't wait i'm here for it i got my popcorn ready this band formed in 1982 hmm. And to give some some reference there, this song, Tub Thumping, came out in 1997. Wow. And had released nine albums before Tub Thumping. That, that's a long con. 
Wow. I don't think they had any real direction. I mean, multiple times reading interviews of this band, they felt like this song was a complete accidental hit. And uh, unlike Right Side Fred, they, they really did not uh, set out to make the song anything that it was. They were previously in another band. There's a lot of good band names in, in what I found here. Uh, their original band name was Chimp Eats Banana. Oh, that's good. Which I think might have been better than Chumbawamba. Apparently Chumbawamba comes from a, one band member's story. And in the story, the men were Chumbas and the women were Wumbas. Naturally. Yeah, so somehow we got Chumbawamba out of that, I guess. The, the idea is that the, the band is men and women. Wait, so this is a story that one of the band members wrote? It, apparently. And there's Chumbas and there's Wumbas, and thus the band named Chumbawamba. I don't read stories unless there's Chumbas and Wumbas, personally. Then you, you have not read many stories. <laughs> <laughs> and they were part of this, uh, this anarchist punk movement. And an interesting side note that I dug into probably far more than I than I probably needed to. I found one article that loosely connected them with the Oi movement. Are you aware of this Oi movement at all? I'm familiar with Oi music. I'm maybe not as familiar with the philosophy behind Oi. So the Oi movement fused the sound of early punk bands, such as the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, the Clash, with influences from 1960s British rock, Mm-hmm. Bands such as Small Faces and The Who, mm-hmm. as well as combining soccer chants and pub rock bands. <laughs> There's the wild card. <laughs> Oi came to be considered mainly a skinhead-oriented genre. The Oi became this this weird racist skinhead movement. Although almost none of the bands that were originally connected with Oi had anything to do with that. And matter of fact, many of them were anti-fascist and anti-racist. Well, skinheads originally in the UK were union workers, right? Okay, that would make sense. That, that would be a good connection. And then it got all mixed up with neo-Nazism and whatnot. Okay, well, there you go. That would put a lot of this together. The reason I want to bring up Oi more than anything else, one, because I do think it's an interesting subgenre, but I also wanted to mention that some of the, the first Oi bands' names were Coxbar, Sham69, and The Foreskins. Oh, yeah. Sham 69 is great. I I implore yeah. you to listen to them. Yeah, really, really great. Okay. I'm not as familiar with Cox Bar's music, although I might know a couple songs from punk compilations and stuff. But I do remember always giggling at it when I'd see it at the little independent punk CD store in my hometown. I mean, <laughs> rightly so. It makes sense. So the only real connection I could find with Chumbawamba to the Oi scene directly was that they, they kind of took aim against Oi and under a pseudonym, Skin Disease, mm. put out a song that got on an Oi compilation. <laughs> and I couldn't find the song, but one article I read said the song involved them shouting, quote unquote, I'm thick, 64 times. Okay. Take that as you will. That was their... So they, they infiltrated from within. They got onto a skinhead comp with a song making fun of skinheads. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's great. Yeah. So they went from this oi-ish band and this this post-punk band and and through the 1980s really started to become this this anti-fascist punk band that they were. They they riled against Margaret Thatcher and many, and they they supported many of the labor unions, uh, most notably the the British minor strike in the 80s and later on the dock strikes in the 1990s, which we'll get into around Tub Thump. Can't wait. They got less 
punk oriented in the 90s, got really into the Euro rave scene and into pop music. And our boy Dambert, no bacon. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, can we pause yeah. for a second here? So we went from parody skinhead punk mm-hmm. to some other version of punk to the rave scene. Can, can you mm-hmm. walk me through this? I really can't. I feel like this was a very prolific band. <laughs> And I, I did spend a good hour listening through a handful of songs, 30 songs or so. And, and there's a lot of shit out there, but it's a lot of... It's just a weird mix of a political rant songs, some very, like, mm-hmm. soccer chant-oriented, which I would, you know, argue that yeah. Tub Thumping is as well. Uh, some are, like, very mm-hmm. folky in nature. Some are poppy. Some are just bad. <laughs> So I think this band went through many different iterations through their 30 years in total. They, they officially broke up, I think, in like 2012, oh, okay. which makes sense. Yeah. Playing what they want to play and releasing what they want to release. That's at, at this point, hell. up until 1997. Yeah. It, I mean, at the end of the day, it is. Our, our boy Dan Burt, No Bacon, said we became obsessed with pop culture. So it seemed apt to try and express that in music. That pissed some people off in the hardcore movement. Maximum Rock and Roll totally disowned us. The first tour, we stayed at their offices in San Francisco, and with the next album, the reviewers said we had gone disco, and we weren't punk anymore. (laughs) Which is kind of funny, because we thought it was so much more than just a style. We were doing something with a bit more depth. So I just Mm. think they were jumping around. Oh, the classic story, rock and disco, they can't coexist. Until Chumbo and we came along. (laughs) Leading up to Tub Thumping here, they signed with mm-hmm. EMI Germany in 1997, which, as far as I can tell, was their first, at least mainstream label, perhaps their first label. Yeah, that's a big deal for a, for yeah. a punk band. And very ironically, years earlier, they were on another compilation, and that compilation was entitled Fuck EMI. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is just brilliant. That's so awesome. they signed the label that they had years earlier. <laughs> made an album essentially called fuck that label <laughs> i think that if you go through the history of punk rock sometimes the hypocrisy is endearing it's human i, I think so it was on purpose there's many quotes of this band talking about them signing to a major label talking about them doing letterman doing the brit awards where they kept coming back to the idea that they had been a band for 10 plus years and never had a platform never really had a real audience to share their political message with mm-hmm. and they figured they were assigned to a major label do these tv shows it'd be their way of putting themselves in front of the people and getting their message out so it's punk in a roundabout way i appreciate that it's no wonder that dan burt was friends with john langford because that's very similar to the mecon story and i think that was emi too oh. which is interesting i want to find that the, the fuck emi compilation and see who else might have been on there and then might have later signed to emi emi heard the compilation and then signed every band that was on the compilation so that they could be cool with the punk crowd. <laughs> hey, I wouldn't blame them. That, that's a very major label <laughs> thing to do. So I would not be surprised whatsoever. <laughs> Again, I did not appreciate this song when I was, how old was I? I would have been 10. I was 10 years old when the song came out and I loved it. If nothing else, this song taught me that mm-hmm. in Britain, pissing meant drinking. Yes. And I did not know that ahead of time. I don't know if I would have learned that if it wasn't for this song, especially at that early age. Have you used that phrase usefully in your life? Did this song 
help you in any particular situation? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I, I am taking the, the educational benefits at face value. I don't know that I've actually put them <laughs> into practice. I feel like this is, this is a song I need to open another beer for. Chumbies. Here's to you, Chumbawamba. And by the way, I keep saying the Chumbies because there's one article from a DC newspaper in 1997 talking about anarchists coming to DC, <laughs> and they call them the Chumbies. Anarchists in DC, I wouldn't normally guess that they were talking about Chumbawamba. Well, not anymore, no. Chumbies. You know, there are a lot of English expats that could have been a loving fan who wrote that. It's true. This, yeah, this, this article is entitled... Anarchists invade America. British leftist hub thumping anthem is a surprise hit. And this is the battle show that they play at the 930 Club. Oh, wow. I love the 930 Club. Yeah. It's a great yeah. club. I love that Chumbawamba played there. I'll have to remember that next time I'm there. They probably signed their name somewhere. I've seen a fair amount of English bands there. So it's, it's, a, it's a part of history, really. They are a very collaborative band. They, they talk a lot about living in like a commune as they mm-hmm. were coming up. And sharing food, sharing the chumbas money. and the wombas. The chumbas and the wombas. Although I believe there's only one womba, which is Alice. Okay. Alice Nutter. And the rest of them are all. And guys. She sings in the song, right? She does. Yeah. Okay. She does a Danny Boy part, which we were about to reference. The original story of the song, while it is a political anthem, the the origin comes from one of the band members was in bed at night with his wife, and they heard the next door neighbor coming home. He was super drunk, making a lot of noise, and he was singing Danny Boy, very, very uh, <laughs> English, which becomes a lyric in the song, which Alice Nutter sings. Uh, so apparently this, this awesome. drunk neighbor goes up to the door, puts his key in, and he falls over, and he gets back up. And this happens multiple times. He was just so drunk, he kept falling over. So eventually he went in, went to bed, presumably, and fell asleep. And it just clicked for this band member's brain. And he woke up the next morning and he wrote the song. So this song is a political anthem for the union members. But at the end of the day, it's about a drunk guy next door who keeps falling up, keeps getting up, pissing the night away. So this song, though it does have political context and means more metaphorically than we thought, is really about what I thought it was about. It's really about what you thought it was about. It's really about exactly what the lyrics describe. Yeah. <laughs> The song is bizarre. I mean, if you think about the song, the lyrics don't make any sense together, especially the Danny Boy part. Yeah, unless you know the the story about the drunk neighbor singing Danny Boy, trying to get his keys in the door. I think if you were sitting around trying to guess what the song is about, you'd eventually get there. On its face, it's not totally clear that this song is about his drunk neighbor (laughs) falling up the stairs, singing danny boy an irish traditional song which uh, you know what i just learned something new not only that the reason that they mention danny boy in the song is because of the drunken neighbor singing danny boy but i think because of the english accent that's used in the song i always thought she was saying donny boy i never even thought that it was related to the song danny boy oh interesting i don't know that i ever Considered it not being, I don't know, I was out Danny Boy, I guess. I think I always pictured a drunk guy named Donnie that they're singing about in the song, and she's kind of lamenting about drunk Donnie. Oh, Donnie boy, he's he's drunk again, pissing the night away. Yeah, okay, that's good. And I thought that he was pissing because he drank so much, but really, he was just drinking. Well, there's probably some pissing involved, too, but... 
and again, as a as a what ten, twelve year old like we were, that that would be where our minds would go. But I didn't know that tub thumping was essentially stumping a politician talking on a soapbox. Oh, okay. So when, when we say like uh, a politician is doing a stump speech in Britain, they would say they're tub thumping. Kind of sums up the entire song. I mean, it is just a political rally cry for the unions that when the government knocks you down, you get back up again and you keep going. So the entire summation of the song and one that I didn't realize at all until listening back today multiple times. How many times did you listen to the song today? Yeah, I was at 13, 14. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good song. <laughs> so they made like point zero 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 forty eight cents. Uh, that's probably true. Yeah. Money going towards the creation of that documentary. <laughs> Outside of the band being very political, the only way that it's really connected to politics is that they name the song Tub Thumping, which doesn't appear in the song ever. So right. I assume they just named it that as a, as like a tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. joke. I believe I actually read somewhere that they don't even know why they named it that. We go from, from, from No Bacon, I'm not sure why we called it that, Tub Thumping. So, there you go. Okay. <laughs> At the heart of this podcast, we try to figure out why this song connected and became popular. And I, th- I think it just it hit upon all of Chumbawamba's offerings. And they mixed their English punk rock, mixed it with horns, mixed it with an anthem that you can just chant. And it, it just became a hit. And the chorus, they've got those huge reverberated Britpop guitars that were popular just after the first wave of Britpop. And then the beat, it kind of has that rave kind of feel to it a little bit. I feel like it mixed multiple different themes of the time into one, but then also mixed in this anthem Mm -hmm. chant, which I don't really think was apparent in a lot of songs, and Mm -hmm. it just connected. Because from what I can tell, the song came out on August 23rd, 1927. Wait, what year? (laughs) 1997. You said 1927. (laughs) Wow, this really is an old union anthem. Well... It took a long time to get the charts then. <laughs> this song came out August 23rd, and then to number two on the UK charts the week of August 31st. There's no way that's correct. But it did get to its highest chart position in the US in the last week of November in 97. Hmm. It didn't take that long to come over here in that time. I feel like it took a while without the internet. Yeah, the song was just an instant hit and just resonated with everyone. Talking about the, the chart here, the it, it got to number six in the U.S., number one at the time, and number one for weeks was Elton John's Candle in the Wind, the, the 997 version. So you can't beat that. You've been vindicated now. I, I know. Since I know. last episode, you were wondering if I'm Too Sexy was competing with Candle in the I, Wind. I thought that was close in the time period. And similar to I'm Too Sexy... Tub thumping only reached number two in the UK chart. Really? I assume that most people who are listening to this have heard the first episode of the podcast, which came out a couple weeks ago. If you didn't, you should. There are some striking similarities here. I mean, English band in the 90s with some kind of punk roots uh, ended up being involved in the club scene a little bit, writes a song that's very literal based on something that happened to them that involved 
drinking. Well, I would say most songs probably do revolve around that somehow. Major label puts some money behind it, and it only reaches number two in its native country. Do you know what song held it off from getting to number one? Don't tell me it was Brian Adams. (laughs) (laughs) All right, 97, (laughs) 97, right? Spice Girls? We are getting towards the end of the movie season here in late August, and it would be Will Smith's Men in Black. You know? Held it off for the movie the songs that were just about plot points in the movie. Pretty good song. As I'm looking at these numbers, it looks like this song came out a week before it went to number two on the UK singles chart. Which they must have had a following before the album came out then. Or but it popped at number two in the first week and then went down from there. Was it on TV that weekend or something? Not, nothing that I could find, I don't know. Huh, that's interesting. That's interesting that's not part of the story. They do reference often in the, uh, the couple interviews that I read that, that it just popped, and it was a huge surprise to them. So, huh. maybe it just did. Maybe it was a similar thing, um, you know, to a lot of songs in that time where some BBC Radio 1 DJ loved it and spun it, and it just kind of snowballed from there that turnaround time of just a few days is like as close to viral as you could get in 1997. Speaking of viral, the, an interesting side point to this song and this album, there were many references on this album to political quotes, graffiti, anarchist texts and such, but the label wanted them to have in their liner notes. There was so much of it and the band couldn't reference all of it factually that they ended up putting it on a website, chumba.com. And that's where it lived in lieu of the liner notes, which in 1997 was pretty far ahead of its time. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, chumba.com still is a website. And if you go on it, it has the band's breakup letter, if you will, from 2012. Really? Yeah, it it was nicely written. Is it like the Space Jam website where it's from the 90s and still looks like it's from the 90s with all the GIFs and stuff? It certainly has not been updated, at least in the last nine years. I guess my question is, is it hosted on Angel Fire? Uh, it might be GeoCities. Let me double check. <laughs> this is during the time when like a lot of you know, the MTV awards were around. And people were doing crazy fun things and you know, trying to make their name for themselves. So uh, the Chumbies did that uh, in 1998 in the Brit Awards. And uh, No Bacon says... We had a band meeting about whether we should even go. It's sellout territory. The record company said, you have to go. They'll give you a budget, and you can do whatever you want with your performance. So by sellout territory, you mean they're a punk band, and they'd be sellouts if they go to the Brit Awards? Yes, exactly. Okay. But they seem to not care about that, since they've already signed with a major label and and happily did so. (laughs) We have the local dock workers who are on strike. And... Chumbawamba just did a huge benefit show for them, the dock workers. And so they decided that they would perform the show. And they made this video montage of British protest movements surrounded by red and black flags of rebellion and anarchy. And the band wore jumpsuits that had phrases like sold out, shift units, and label whore, which is great. So they, they performed the song. It's very, you know, performative. And they changed some lyrics within the song. Uh, most notably, they say, new labors sold out the dockers, just like they'll sell out the rest of us. They also, at the time, were up for an award. So they invited a few 
doc members to be to go to the Brit Awards with them. The idea being, if they won, instead of Chumbawamba going on stage, they would send these doc workers up to talk about what recently happened and why they have the strike. They do not win, but the as, as quoted by by No Bacon, so they don't win. He says, "We got drunk and we felt terrible." that they weren't going to get a voice on national television. So Paul said, Dan's going to go throw water on John Prescott, who at the time is a deputy prime minister who was at the show. So the entire band gets up and throws water all over the the prime minister, or the deputy prime minister during the award show, which was like a massive <laughs> yep. controversy, apparently. Yeah, he was the deputy prime minister to Tony Blair, right? Yeah, yeah. So Bacon says, they've got these big tables you served a meal, and they had these big buckets of chilled champagne and chilled white wine full of ice water. We'd been drinking, and I was always one of those easily convinced to do a dare. And that's how it all started. So they get up. I guess at some point they pour water on this man and yell, this is for the dock workers. Uh, so anyway, Dan Burke got arrested and uh, went to jail for that one. Excellent. Well, it doesn't matter if you sold out and went to a major label and went to the Brit Awards. You got arrested at the award show from dumping water on the deputy prime minister because he sold out the dock work. That's punk rock. Yes, me. That's pretty punk rock. Uh, some other good controversies from the band. Um, Virgin Records stores uh, stopped selling the album or started selling the album from behind the counter after Alice Nutter told a talk show that for fans who couldn't afford the album, they should just steal it from big chain stores. Also punk rock. The time of record labels signing punk bands that are staunchly against everything else that their corporation does. I mean, that's quite a gamble. It is. Would that fly now? Would, would record labels even do that now? I, I don't see how there's really any room for major labels to roll the dice on a overtly political punk band. I mean, maybe it might have happened recently with rappers. that They've kind of taken the torch of punk rock of talking about political yeah, issues on, on the world stage. But at this time, it was Chumbawamba. It was Chumbawamba. So a couple other uh, good controversies we got here from Chumbawamba. Oh, on Letterman, they changed the lyrics to Free Muma Abu Jamal. He was a Black Panther who was arrested, and I believe is still in jail. They, they said he killed a cop, but there's tons of evidence out there that that is, in fact, not true. I actually saw something a couple weeks ago that was uh, asking people to send letters. Letterman, CBS, said that they had to re-record it, and the band said, no, you either use it or you don't, and they ended up using it. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite little anecdotes here was the band very publicly turned down a $1.5 million offer from Nike to use tub thumping in their World Cup advertisement. But then, several years later, the band did accept $70,000 from General Motors to use another song in one of their ads, but then immediately and very publicly donated all $70,000 to an activist group that was campaigning against General Motors. <laughs> well, I was about to say, General Motors is so famously anti-union. That's on General Motors for choosing a very pro-union band to present their commercial. Nigel Farage also used their song once. Oh, boy. <laughs> which was, yeah, yeah. Very uh, out of taste. So he used the song in what? They sent him a cease and desist or something? I believe the, the quote was to total and absolute outrage and horror from the band. 
Here's a quote. I am absolutely appalled that this grubby little organization is stealing our song to use for their own ends. It's beyond pale. And if they use it again, we will consider legal action. Strongly worded. We got the Village Voice named Tub Thumping the second best single of the year in 1997. Do you know what the verse was? Was it Men in Black? The top albums was Bob Dylan, Time Out of Mind, Radiohead, OK Computer. The number one single, according to the Village Voice in 1997, was another song that will be featured on this podcast at some point. Hanson's Mbop. Oh, wow. Really? The best yes. single of the year? Apparently. Followed very closely by uh, Missed It by Seven Votes, Chumbawamba, Tub Thumping. Number three, mm. The Verve, Bittersweet Symphony. Oh, great song. I like thinking about the dichotomy of British music at the time being represented by Chumbawamba and Radiohead OK Computer. Like those two things being so popular at the same time in the same country really shows what's happening inside of British rock music at the time, because OK Computer was credited by many as destroying British guitar rock. Musically, so very different, but way more aligned politically than I would have imagined. For sure. Perhaps no bacon and Tom York are friends. Who knows? I'm sure there are a lot of people in the UK at the time who purchased Tub Thumping and OK Computer at the same time at Virgin Megastore. <laughs> I didn't purchase them at a Virgin Megastore, but I definitely owned both those albums at the same time. Yeah, they, they walked in, they saw OK Computer at the front display, and then they had to go to the counter to ask the cashier if they could get Chumbawamba Tub Thumping. And then somehow try to steal it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they just stole something else on the way out. They just stole the Men in Black soundtrack. Well, they, they didn't steal that. That went to number one, baby. <laughs> so say, this song, Tub Thumping, is also included on the 2005 book, The 7500 Most Important Songs of 1944 to 2000. So that's a book. Probably true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. It's a lot of songs to include in a list. How many people do you think actually figured it out or read about it in the music press and had conversations about labor disputes and labor rights because of the song. You're probably right, especially in London or in, in Britain. Cause I mean, again, I was 10 years old, but it completely uh, missed my radar. I wonder if it was more obvious there because of what was going on that this song was about what the band wanted it to be about. I would say so. And I think if you were watching the Brit Awards, yeah, the Brit Awards, much more apparent than it would have been here. I think that was one, two years after the Pulp fiasco, where Jarvis Cocker was arrested at the Brit Awards, too. Yeah. I'm telling you, it was during that time when everyone was doing something cheeky on the MTV Awards. Well, for Jarvis Cocker, it was literally cheeky because he mooned the camera while Michael Jackson was oh, on stage. There you go. But, I actually didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the video is online. <laughs> Another list that this song shows up born, which is the complete opposite of the most important songs of 1944 to 2000. It is on Rolling Stone's 2007 list of the 20 most annoying songs of all time, (laughs) which is a great list now that I'm looking at it. Number one is Black Eyed Peas, My Humps, for reference. Okay, that checks out. I don't find this song to be annoying at all. Like, there's a lot of different parts to the song. There's some different instrumentation going on. I mean, I guess the chorus is somewhat repetitive, but everything in between is pretty nuanced. Yeah, I agree. Those horns, the horns in this song are amazing. It's funny because I said that about 
I'm too sexy, but these horns are actually, they sound incredible. These horns are actually amazing. And this is a song that I would certainly point to that when I say that horns make almost every song better. That's a great Absolutely. The build with the horns, it's great. Yeah, so I don't find it that annoying. It came in number 12 on the, on Rolling Stones list. I won't read the rest of the songs on this list because 60% of them will be in an episode on this <laughs> podcast. So you'll just have to keep listening to find out where they end up. <laughs> a couple notable covers. The Flaming Licks have a great cover of this song. I didn't know that. I'd love to hear that. It, it's, it's kind of like a, a melodramatic version. Okay. Which I really enjoy. I feel like those two bands are very aligned politically as well. They are. And maybe Flaming Lips a little bit more musically to uh, Chumbawamba than than Radiohead was. More musically than Radiohead, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I am not a huge Fish fan, but apparently this is a popular Fish cover. Or at least they covered it once and it became uh, a cult classic for the Fish fans. You mean they covered it once and they're still covering it right now (laughs) because the song hasn't ended? It was certainly a much longer version, that's for sure. (laughs) Uh, and then I, I mentioned this because I think it's a cute little story. Uh, 21 Pilots also covered the song, which would not be noteworthy except for our boy Danbert No Bacon's daughter loves the 21 Pilots. And I think it's, it's fun when your daughter can recognize your song and your legacy because one of your favorite oh, cool. then plays your dad's song. That's pretty yeah. bad. Yeah, that's cool. Um, pop culture wise, I think it's everywhere. The only thing that I remember it being in was an episode of The Simpsons. I get knocked down. I get knocked down again. You're never gonna knock me down. Whoa, party house. Hey, where's my keg? Mm, mom's not gonna like that. Well, apparently, it was in an episode of Billions, which Alice Nutter, she's quoted as saying, We knew it was gonna be in Billions, we allowed it, but then we forgot about it. And I found myself proud and thinking, ah, that's a good song. <laughs> Which is another cute. <laughs> I like that. As she's watching a show about terrible capitalists. Yeah. I really just think of it being played at sporting events. Well, again, it has that like soccer, football chant vibe to it, for sure. I've definitely heard it at baseball games. I mean, I get back, I get I knocked down, I get back up again. It's a very kind of sports nomenclature, right? Right, of course. By far their biggest hit. They really have nothing else that even remotely came close to this. But like I said, if you go back and listen to their catalog, there are a fuck ton more political songs, ones that are far more political than this one. A lot of songs rallying against Margaret Thatcher. There's a song called Homophobia, which is written after an attack in Northern England in nineteen ninety four. Um they they were just ahead of the curve on a lot of human rights issues and uh workers' rights issues and they wrote a lot of Great political songs about it. I wouldn't say great musically songs, but, uh, but if you're into that they're kind a punk of thing, band, they're worth, worth checking out their other 13 records. They're, they're a punk band. It doesn't have to be musically sound. It's about the message, Ted. Very true. Very true. Well, there's <laughs> a lot of good messages out there. If there are any people that decide to look into more Chumbawamba music and enjoy it and support them, it seems like they're supporting some good people. Yeah. As absolutely. it seems. Are we doing a are we doing a listener's corner? A listener's mail mailbag? Uh we can. I'm gonna put you on the spot. We uh, I think we should start doing this. We're gonna do listener mail at the end of every episode. If you have something that we missed on the last episode, tweet at us, write to us. Uh, you know, make sure we have all the, the correct information because we did leave something out of the last episode about I'm too sexy. Uh yes. 
We did. It was pointed out to me by at least two listeners of the first episode of this podcast, which covered Right Said Fred's I'm Too Sexy, that we missed a pretty major factoid about the song. And I don't know how this happened because I read about that song for hours. There's a pretty recognizable guitar riff in the bridge of this song that is lifted from a Jimi Hendrix song, Third Stone from the Sun, from Are You Experience? Not sure how I missed this, but I guess Rob Manzoli was inspired by the Hendrix song. Thought it would sound great on I'm Too Sexy. (laughs) So originally, when they were sitting in that room, you know, drinking and taking their shirts off, they were inspired by a Hendrix song. Perhaps they were listening to it. It did end up counting as an actual sample, and I believe that the Jimi Hendrix estate or whoever owns that song makes money from I'm Too Sexy, which means they may also make money from the Taylor Swift song. Which all of that. That, that, is, that is the music industry. Who would have in thought that? Right Side Fred and Jimi Hendrix had a direct connection. <laughs> um, I wish that we'd been able to cover that in the last episode, but, you know, we're, we're human. We're chumbas and wombas. Chumbas and Wombas, walking through this world. <laughs> so if you have information about Chumbawamba or Tub Thumping that we missed on this episode, make sure to let us know, and we will make sure to include it in the next episode. Hit us up on Twitter, YWAHpod, and tell us why we're wrong. We want to talk about it. <laughs> That's what we're here for. Wow. So that was, that was Tub Thumping. Again, it is a bizarre song. The lyrics don't really make sense together. There are a lot of musical genres being combined there. It sounds like it's a silly song that wouldn't be as massive as it is. It's a good song, and the story behind it is pretty funny, while it also being metaphorical for an important cause. Exactly. What more can you ask for? That's a pretty, yeah, that's well-rounded. I feel good. I feel good inside after hearing this story. Yeah, that is you. I had no idea. I really thought this was just a fun drinking song with a fun English chant in it, but who knew it had so much depth to it? And who knew the band had so much depth to it? There, there is a lot of information about how much good this band has done, how much money they've donated to different organizations, different concerts that they've put on to support organizations and, and, and causes. So this band is doing, doing a lot of good and has done a lot of good in their, in their time. I think that's great. And, you know, it combines two things that are near and dear to me. It's Drinking for a good cause. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Cheers to that. That's ideal. Cheers to that. That's a wrap on this episode of You Wanted a Hit. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Good luck getting tub thumping out of your head. Please remember to subscribe so you know when the next episode is out. And if you listen on Apple, write a review, but only if it's nice. Follow us on Twitter at YWAHpod and let us know what you think. We welcome any suggestions for songs for future episodes, so bring them on. And lastly, share with a friend if you had a good time. This podcast was researched, produced, recorded, and edited by me and Theo Beidler. And our theme music is by Air Doctor. We'll see you next time.